Well, good morning and welcome to another edition of Confessing Our Hope, the podcast of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. As usual, I'm your host, William Hill, and I say that every week, so why? I don't know. I just do, just in case someone forgets who I am, but now you know. Anyway, it's been a crazy week around Greenville Seminary. My wife and I have just moved again for our third time in two years, and uh, but very thankful for our new resident, uh, new um, house, our rental situation. It's uh, really ideal, and um, so we're thankful to the Lord for his blessings to us, uh, certainly giving us far more than we deserve uh, as it pertains to that. Um, in addition to that, we have the summer courses now in full swing here at the <coughs> seminary. Um, if you had not signed up, too late. <coughs> but anyway, Dr. Piper is beginning his summer institute class this evening at 6 o'clock on the subject of preaching. And uh, I'd hope that you take advantage of those kinds of things. And that's why we do the podcast, is so that people can hear about what we're doing here at the seminary what are the various activities, classes, what are, our, what are our professors doing? What do they do when they're not in the classroom? And today we happen to have one of our professors uh, in studio, as it were, in my office, but it's a studio, at least for the next hour. And he'll be talking uh, to us about the subject of missions. Now, uh, Dr. Tony Curto is my guest. Uh, he is uh, very active working with the OPC in the, um, in the field of missions, uh, traveling extensively. Um, every, anybody who knows him around the halls here knows that he is uh, very active in this area. And we're going to hear from him in just a minute about a philosophy of ministry, or a philosophy of missions, and that which we teach here, when I say we, he teaches here at the seminary. So stay tuned to that, for that in just one second. Let me bring you up to speed a little bit about what's going on in the podcast. Uh, we are in full swing with the Faith and Practice segment, releasing episode number two just last week. And if you are, are interested in that segment where you can write in to Dr. Piper and receive answers to your questions, then simply visit our website at Confessing Our Hope at gpr confessingourhope.com confessingourhope.com if you have any comments or questions about the podcast you want to write me hate mail that has happened but if you want to write me hate mail <laughs> don't but no seriously if you want to write in suggestions comments criticisms even uh, write me at confessingourhope at gpts.edu and i will respond in a timely fashion as i indicated today we're going to be speaking with dr tony curdo <laughs> on the subject of missions. Now, Dr. Uh, Curdo is uh, the, the professor of practical theology, missions, and apologetics here at Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. He's received his MA from Westminster Theological Seminary, that's on the East Coast in Philadelphia, and received his MDiv and his DMIN from Westminster Th Theological Seminary all the way over there on the other coast. So he's been all over the country as it were, but that's nothing, really. In a minute, you'll hear more about that. He is also very active in the OPC. In fact, I believe was the outgoing moderator for this year's uh, OPC General Assembly. So, Dr. Curdo, it's great to have you on the program. I think it's the first time you've been on, and uh, I don't know why that is. After 39 episodes, um, we finally got Dr. Curdo on the program. And um, But anyway, it's good to have you on. And, and as you begin to talk about this subject of missions with us, why don't you tell us a little bit about your personal activity, your personal work in the area of missions. Um, I know you travel extensively, so why don't you tell the listeners a little bit about that, and um, then we'll move right into what 
we want to discuss today. Thank you, Bill, for uh, having me on your program today and uh, for asking me to speak about this particular subject. As you have given me this introduction, uh, you can tell that it is something that's of interest uh, to me. How did I get involved or, you know, in the work of missions? Well, obviously, as a Christian who uh, take seriously Jesus' great commission there in Matthew uh, 28 to go unto all nations. It's something that, uh, as a pastor and minister uh, of God's Word, that's been of concern and interest and uh, desire uh, in my own heart. I, uh, upon graduating from Westminster Seminary, took a call to a congregation in Southern California, which I ended up pastoring for 14 years. Uh, but during that time, the Lord opened the door as I was working on my uh, Doctor of Ministries degree to start doing some traveling. My first major trip actually was in uh, 1985 when I went to uh, Korea, the Philippines, and Japan uh, to work with some congregations that our church supported uh, to do some preaching and some teaching and got my really my first taste of the, of the foreign field. Though having grown up in Southern California and being so close to the Mexican border, um, I certainly was aware of what it was like to live in a context other than uh, the United States. But 1985 was really my initiation uh, into that, and I spent some time then for the OPC uh, doing some, some uh, mission work, but in 1993 was asked uh, by the OPC uh, to go to Uganda uh, as an exploratory trip to see if the OPC uh, should uh, begin a mission work in that particular country, uh, working alongside the Presbyterian Church uh, in Uganda. Hmm. In God's providence, um, uh, I was called subsequently to go to that field. Um, Kathleen and I uh, ended up spending the ni next nine years actually from 1995 to 2004 in Uganda as a uh, full-time missionary evangelist. 1999, I uh, had the opportunity again with the Orthodox Presbyterian Church to uh, help out with the mission in Ethiopia, uh, which I continue to do, spending a couple times a year uh, in Ethiopia going. I also have recently, in the last uh, three years or so, begun working with some congregations in uh, Austria, Switzerland, mm. uh, the Reformed Evangelical Church Westminster there, uh, as they seek to propagate the gospel. Uh, I've had the opportunity to be all over Europe, uh, into South America, uh, all over um, Africa, uh, doing mission work. So <clears throat> certainly... It is of interest and, and concern to me uh, that we do this particular work. What most people don't realize is that um, in the church, you know, missions has gone on since the very beginning. I mean, you, you go back to the book of Acts, and, you know, we, we see God's work begin to spread the gospel throughout the uh, uh, nations. One of the interesting things about that is that as you read, um, as you study principles or ideas of missions, there's not a whole lot of systematic teaching on it. I mean, it, it was always just something that people did. 
um, obviously, because we were commissioned to do so. In the providence of God, he pushes us out into uh, those directions. But it really wasn't until the uh, 16th and 17th century that what we might call the science of missions, asking the kinds of questions about why we do missions, how do we do missions, what's the best way to approach missions, what's our goal, uh, all of those kinds of questions didn't uh, really begin to be answered in a systematic and clear way in, until that particular time. And for us here, even in the United States, if you, if you think about it, um, missions as missions really didn't begin, push, become really a focus of the evangelical church until the evangelical uh, awakenings and mission uh, movements in the uh, 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 18th and 19th century. I mean, obviously, um, some of the Puritans in Massachusetts, and, and uh, uh, we know the stories of, of them, uh, were doing missions among the American Indians. But really, worldwide missions is, is a phenomenon in the evangelical church uh, that, that came uh, in the mid-1800s. And so when we begin to reflect upon that, to say, okay, so we've been doing missions, uh, you know, uh, a little over a century and a half— uh, in terms of, of what we're doing, but um, there's needs to be, I believe, a lot more reflection on exactly how we're doing it and a, why we're doing it and what's the best strategies in terms of, of doing it and reaching. And recognizing that the work of missions primarily is, is not the work uh, d- specifically or firstly of the individual Christian, but it is, it is the work of the universal visible Church of Christ, uh, of which our denominations are particular visible expressions of that universal visible Church. So whether it's Orthodox Presbyterian or PCA or um, any of the other number of denominations uh, that are working there, uh, we need to be thinking more strategically and uh, in connection with one another as to how to evangelize instead of this kind of hit and miss and everybody goes out and does a little bit of everything mm-hmm. and in some ways a whole lot of nothing. Um, <laughs> but at the same time, you know, we, we can look and say probably in the history of the church there's never been a period of time where more work is being done that's being done now. But we could still ask the question, is it as effective as it ought to be? And so that's why, besides doing missions, uh, it's a, a great opportunity for me as a professor here at the seminary in dealing with young men preparing for uh, ministry to instill in them that inquisitive, questioning uh, spirit, in a sense, to say, okay, if this is what God wants us to do, how's the best way to do it? Mm-hmm. And and what's our involvement in it? And how can we really propagate uh, the gospel to the nations? And I think a second reason is because as a missiologist, I'm um, hearing sometimes uh, individuals saying things like, well, the idea of the foreign mission is finished. We should be thinking along some other lines. But I don't see that in Scripture uh, as we would look at it uh, in terms of the commission that God has uh, sent us to do. So from God's uh, plan with the apostles, especially the Apostle Paul, mm. in his mission to the Gentiles who uh, 
the coming of the Lord again. I believe that God would have us taking the gospel uh, to every nation, teaching them whatsoever Christ has commanded us. Yeah, and that's really well said. I think one of the things that you touched on that is um, of interest to me um, is you, you talked about individuals just kind of going out and doing missions. And then you, you somehow, in some sense, contrasted that with the church going out and doing missions. Now, what's the difference? Before we actually get into this five points, I mean, it's just one of those questions, and I think if I have my history correct, and you you, uh, you can correct me, obviously, or adjust my thinking a little bit, but I think this is one of the issues that uh, was at the center of, of um, the OPC's even its birth back in, in the 30s. Um, who's responsible for sending people into the mission field, if you want to call it that, yeah, and, and that's a good question because, I mean, I, I think that there's a lot of misunderstanding, and especially as it centers around uh, the Great Commission in Matthew 28 and uh, Mark 16. Is that commission uh, given to the apostles? Is that commission given to every individual Christian? Is that uh, mission given to the church as the church of our Lord and Savior, uh, Jesus Christ. And we don't have time to, to go through and argue all the points of, of exegesis and, and what we would draw to that, but I would just say that my conviction is, is that the commission is given to the church as the body of Christ— um, and one of the principles that I talk about is that the church is the agent of the missionary enterprise. Mm. But that individual Christian's responsibility is a responsibility then indirectly as they are members of the church. God's gifted them with certain gifts. Uh, some gifts are those gifts of speaking where we'll, they'll go out as mission uh, missionaries. Others in terms of administration where they, within the church, they might administrate or help to administrate and oversee uh, that, you know, that particular mission. And so that as the church, think about it for a moment. Jesus says to us in the Great Commission, go ye therefore unto every nation. That's not my individual responsibility because it's impossible for me to go to every single sure. nation. Sure. I can't go to every single nation. And so, but the church, as the universal, visible church of Christ, can, and as we labor together. So we recognize that God uses one denomination to send missionaries to a particular uh, place in the world. He uses another denomination to send uh, missionaries to a particular place in the world. For instance, the Orthodox Presbyterian Church has its missions in, uh, primarily in uh, Eastern Africa, in uh, Asia, uh, in places like Haiti, Japan, um, we've got a mission now in, in South America. But, and, and are we failing in not going to having a missionary in every single nation? No, we're not. We don't have the resources. We don't have the manpower in God's providence. But we work and cooperate with other churches to uh, support them, to sometimes send men to help them in their particular missions, or we receive men from their churches to help us in our missions. And then we see the church evangelizing, doing missions in every nation, kindred, tribe, and tongue. Mm. And we, we support one another and we labor together. So, so that's what I mean in terms of this is the work of the church yep. to do missions. Yep. <clears throat> it, it's interesting that you mentioned the, the cooperation 
um, element because, as you said, it, it, it's, it's not possible for just the OPC to be in every nation. It's not possible for the PCA to be in every nation. <clears throat> it's not possible for every denomination to, to do that. <clears throat> but you do work closely, and, and I was reminded as you were talking of um, the most recent presby- meeting of Presbytery at, uh, for Calvary Presbytery here in this area of South Carolina where there's a man, and now the name just left me. That's terrible. You should never have that happen on the air, by the way. It's one of those horrible moments. But, he, but uh, Dr. Crittle may remember. But anyway, he's laboring in Haiti. Octavius? Thank you. Delphus. Yes, yes, that's him. Um, and, and that's a joint cooperative uh, enterprise um, uh, between Calvary Presbytery and the, and, and the OPC. So it, there, they're, we're working together. And so this does go on, and that's a great thing because we're really on the same team, right? We are. And so this, and especially in this area at least, but I think in general. But regardless, that's a different subject for another day. Um, just by a way of clarification, Dr. Curtle mentioned Kathleen. That would be his wife. Um, and also, for those of you who are uh, actively involved with Greenville Seminary, you certainly know Mrs. Curto. <laughs> it's almost impossible not to know her. So a little shout-out for Mrs. Curto. Um, she's like the glue around here, kind of keeps everything together. She's the hub, as it were, of information for all of us students, um, both distance and resident students. And so um, just wanted to make sure I got that clear. Now, Dr. Curto, you've put in, um, you've given me um, a week or so ago in preparation for this um, broadcast, you've given me uh, what is amounts to, uh, as you said, what you basically teach over an entire semester in your class on missions. And we're going to, in the next 40 minutes or so, try to go through these five points I don't, I don't know if, it, if, if that means anything, five points. Okay. But five points and discuss around them and through them the philosophy of, of missions that, that you present to the class, the, the students here at the seminary. But before we do that, I do want to make this other point. Um, a lot of seminaries, you know, they're about the business of training preachers to go into churches and pastor, right? And, and, and a lot of them end up staying in the United States. Not all, but a lot. And they either plant churches or they, they're called to a church and whatnot. Greenville Seminary, one of the unique things about this school is that they are very missions-minded. In fact, every month during the school year, we have a missions chapel. I think it's every month, right? Every month. Um, we have a missions chapel where a missionary, either a graduate of the school that's on the field, or somebody else comes in and preaches um, in chapel. And then afterwards, the students have lunch with this missionary, and ask questions and listen to more of the work. Now, why do we do that? Well, there's two reasons, I think. One, it's to challenge the students that maybe the Lord is calling them in that direction. You don't, Guys change directions in the middle of the seminary all the time. They think they're going into the pastorate, and then they end up finding out, you know what, the Lord really wants me in Africa. Happens. Um, but the other thing, too, is that as a pastor, a teaching elder in the church, hopefully you're going to help your sessions be missions-minded as the church. Because there may be men, couples there in your church that are going to be called of the Lord to do this work. So you want to be, as Dr. Curdle said, you want the church to be sending these people out. And so I think that's the two reasons, at least as I can tell, um, is why we do that here at the seminary. There's probably more. 
And I also mentioned to Dr. Curto off the air that he's going to have to hold my hand a little bit through this. I have not taken this class yet. This is a fourth-year class, I fourth believe. Class. And I'm just a third-year student. I'm one of the lowly guys in the building, as it were. So, um, so I'm going to be getting the entire semester, as it were, so I don't have to take the class in my fourth year in the next 40 minutes. That was a joke, by the way. Um, so we're going to go through this. And so I guess, Dr. Curdle, I guess the best way to start is that in this outline you've given me, your first point on missions is simply Christ as the risen God-man is the leader of the missionary enterprise. Why don't you tell me, what, what are you getting at with that? Well, first of all, let me begin by saying that our approach to missions here at Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary is what it would be traditionally described as an old-school mm-hmm. approach mm-hmm. to missions. Um, what I've learned or what uh, I have been persuaded of through the years in my study of missions basically was that Princeton Seminary, under the uh, tutelages of uh, Alexander and Miller and Hodge and Breckenridge as the first professor of missions there, got it right Mm. in terms of their approach to missions. Now, in this first point, what we would do, and and actually uh, Charles Hodge in his uh, systematic theology makes the comment about missions that God is the founder and Lord or leader of missions. We do missions. If I ask the question, why do we do missions, most people will answer me to say, because we were commissioned to do so, and that's correct. Christ said, go ye therefore unto all nations. But really, that's not the foundation of missions, because we could ask the question, why did Christ command us to Mm. go to all nations? Mm And the reason Christ commands us to go to all nations is because Christ, as the risen mediator, is doing missions. Christ is taking his gospel to every nation, kindred, tribe, and tongue. Now, he does that through, as we'll talk about in the second point, through the agency of his church. But it is part of the mediatorial reign of Christ to take the gospel to the nations, to call his elect from every corner of the globe, the north, the south, the east, and the west, from every kindred, from every tribe, from every tongue. It is Christ's work to subdue the nations. As the second Adam, Christ is subduing the nations, he's subduing the earth, He's multiplying. He's uh, drawing in his elect from the four corners of the earth. Just as Adam, as the first Adam, uh, as the head of the human race, was to subdue the earth and multiply, so Christ, as the second Adam, is subduing the earth. Mm. He is multiplying his uh, kingdom. And we do missions in that context because Christ does missions. This is what the risen Savior is doing. Sometimes we think about the ascended Christ. What's Christ doing? If I ask people, what is Christ like? What's the ministry of Christ? Well, he makes intercession for the saints. True. 
what the scripture teaches us. He's risen, sits at the right hand of God, making intercession for the saints. But Christ is also taking his gospel, the good news of himself, to every nation, calling his elect unto himself. John chapter 10 puts it in this way. Jesus says, I have sheep in this flock, the Jews, the Israelites. I have sheep other than these among the nations, and I am calling them to myself, and my sheep will what? They will hear my voice. And Christ's voice is being heard through the preaching of the gospel among the nations as the church goes out and does that, but he's the leader. And I think it's implied to us in the Great Commission when Jesus says, and lo, I am with you. Mm-hmm. Now, the with you is not that he's just kind of companion that comes along. I think the with you is, I'm the leader. I will direct your steps. I will open doors that no man can close. I will close doors that no man can open. And so he leads us as the church uh, to take the gospel, as it were, uh, into the world. And we see that in the, especially in the ministry of the Apostle Paul as God intervenes in Paul's life, both miraculously and, and by other means, to direct Paul where to take those missions and, and uh, to preach the gospel. Uh, I believe that that goes on in the, in the church today as Christ leads us. Yeah, I was, as you were just saying that, I was thinking of Acts 16, where Paul had an intention to go one place, and then in a vision and a dream, he received, in, in his case, divine revelation. I mean, it was the Lord spoke directly to him and told him, no, that's not where you're, you're not going there. You're going someplace else. And um, so that, while we're not saying that's what happens, but the Lord is still leading the church, the mission process in that way through divine providence and through those kinds of things. Yeah, well, I could give an example in terms of my own church in the Orthodox Mm, Presbyterian Church. We've been um, uh, doing missions in a certain part of of eastern uh, Africa um, for decades. And during the course of that that mission work, we've been put out and allowed back in and put out and allowed back in and put out and allowed back in. Um, The door just keeps opening and closing, closing and opening, and uh, our missionaries that, that work in that particular field end up going to other places and working for a while and then going back. And we see other works that, you know, as God closes one door, opens another, and, and that work begins to grow. Uh, and, then, and then that original door opens again, and we send our missionaries back. And so the Lord does that work. Now, in one sense, it's always a uh, disappointment when that takes place. In another sense, we just simply say, this is God's providence. God will open doors. God will close doors. God will direct his church in terms of his labors uh, as uh, he see fit. And we as the church are to to be prepared. When a door opens, we move through it. When a door closes, we thank the Lord for the opportunities that he gave us and look for the next door to be open. Mm, That's a great perspective. Now, you you mentioned, hinted at point two here. Um, I've gone ahead and underlined, I think, the critical pieces in the outline. The first was the leader of the missionary enterprise, the, 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 the issue, the critical piece there is the leader. And here we have the agent. As you had mentioned in point one, Christ is not coming in bodily form and running around the world <clears throat> doing these things. He is appointing people as agents of this work. So what are you driving at in point two, which is the full point, I'm sorry, is the church as God's covenant community is 
the agents of the missionary enterprise? Well, there's a couple of perspectives that that uh, I, I try to uh, emphasize in this um, in this particular point. First of all, we would say yes. Christ is not physically going around uh, and evangelizing, uh, doing missions, but he is mystically through his body. Right. As the church mm. goes for Christ in Christ's name, it is as Christ coming. Yep. We are the body of Christ. And as the Apostle Paul says, Christ makes his appeal through us. And so we, we don't see ourselves as separated as Christ being over here and the church being over here and the church doing this work and Christ doing this work. We see us together. Christ is our head. We is the body. Christ is leading us, and we is the body going. Just like our body follows our head, so does the body of Christ follow Christ, mm. its head. Yeah, and so analogy. that we, we do missions. Yep. Secondly, the emphasis in terms of the church as God's covenanted community uh, in this sense, how is it that the church is that missionary agent? Well, uh, it is, as Paul says, it is as a light in the midst of darkness. God, by his covenant, has, well, our, the Westminster Confession says, says this. It says that God condescends and, and interacts with man uh, through covenant. And we talk about God's redemption as coming to us through his covenant of grace. And as the covenant of grace, um, God has called us unto himself. Mm. He has made us his uh, body, and he is working within us. He causes us to be a, a light. Christ dwells in the midst of his body. It's not a dead body. It's not just an organization, mm. but it is a living vibrant, vital organism, because the Spirit of Christ dwells within us. And I like to put it this way, as the church being the, the uh, agent of the missionary enterprise. In the Old Testament, when God would bring his word, he would also join it with his mighty acts. When the ministry of the word was given, it would prompt the question among those hearing, can this be true? And then in answer to that, God would do his mighty miracles to demonstrate the truthfulness of his word. Mm. Can this be true? Yeah, look at this mighty miracle. The Red Sea gets divided. There's manna in the wilderness. God does all these uh, miracles that, that point people to the truthfulness of his word. Can this be true? Yes, it is. But at the same time, when people saw the mighty acts of God, it also, those mighty acts drove them back to his word because they would see the mighty acts of God and they would say, wow, what does that mean? What meaneth this? And then the word would interpret it. This is what it means, because God is doing this work. And so all through Old Testament mm. history and through the Old Testament revelation, we see this interplay between God's um, interpretive, declarative word and his mighty acts, which were demonstrations of God's sovereignty and power and majesty. <clears throat> well, in a sense, we come to the New Testament. 
And we don't in our day see those mighty acts. After the time of the apostolic uh, witness and ministry, the mighty acts in that sense disappear. We don't see the same kind of of miracles that we saw. So where is the mighty act? Mm. We read in the New Testament that God is going to do this work, and we ask the question, what does this mean? And what we're pointed to then, I believe, is the church, the covenanted community. Think about it on the day of Pentecost. Hmm. When the Spirit of God descends upon the church, all the people that hear all the noise and all the stuff are going, what does this mean? Some says, well, it just means there's a bunch of Jews getting drunk at 9 o'clock in the morning. And Peter stands up and says, no, that's not what it means. This is what it means. And he gives them the interpretation of the Word of God as to what's taking place on the day of Pentecost out of the book of Joel. This is what this means. God is going to send forth his Spirit, and young maidens and young men are going to prophesy, and they're going to do this, and they're going to do that. And so the interplay now is between the mighty work of God in the church, because we're trophies of grace. Hmm. When we hear the Word say to us, believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved, they say, can that be true? And it points us to the church and say, yes, look at this whole covenant community that God has saved, these trophies of grace, that he's called out of darkness into his marvelous light. At the same time, when somebody comes into contact with the church— with that light that's in the world, they ask the question, what does this mean? And we point them back to the Word of God. This is what it means. It means salvation in Jesus. There is no other name given under heaven whereby a man might be saved, save in the name of Jesus. And he really saves. Jesus says, by this shall they know that you're my disciples. He says, by the love that is among you, by the love you have one for another. Well, that speaks to us of the community, Mm. of the people of God, loving one another caring for one another, supporting one another, living together as the body of Christ, shining forth the work of salvation in their lives, that the world looks and says, wow, Jesus really is the Savior. Yeah, what greater act can there be? And we look at the Red Sea, probably in the Red Sea, and we're just blown away, right? Um, I've never seen that happen, but I've read about it. But what greater act can there be, really, than God resurrecting a dead sinner who hates his guts. I mean, that's the reality of it. Suppresses the truth and unrighteousness. Does everything they can to run away from their, 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 um, their place in the world and their accountability to God. What greater act can there possibly be than that? And so I, I think that's well stated. And in, in, in that sense, then, the community displays this. And, and, and does so by, by in, in, the, in the work of missions anyway, shows and demonstrates that same action. So you can't divorce point one from point two because point two is the agents of Christ, those his ambassadors, are doing the work that Christ did when he came, in a sense, as the first missionary. I mean, that's a really probably a bad way to put it. But in a sense, because what was his purpose for coming? To seek and to save the lost. What's the purpose of missions? To seek and to save the lost. There's the same ideology here. Um, and so we have this great responsibility, but we also get this great privilege, right, Dr. Curto? Yes, that's right. That's exactly right. I mean, for us to be able to uh, serve the Lord um, in this way is, is a great privilege. I mean, the Scripture says that God could have raised the rocks mm-hmm. 
God could have used any other means uh, that he chose. But instead, he chose to use redeemed sinners such as us as his body to take his news to every nation, kindred, tribe, and tongue. And, and that, that's... Humbling. Yes, it is. Extremely. <clears throat> Anybody who stood even in a church and preached um, knows, is familiar with that, that emotion, as it were. Um, it is humbling. Why would God use sinful men to communicate his perfect gospel, perfect message of life to dead men? I forget who said it, but he uh, was it Luther? Ah, who knows? I don't remember. Um, that we're, we're just dead men preaching to... Baxter. Baxter. Dead Richard men preaching Baxter. to dead men. So, um, <clears throat> But it, it is a, it's a great privilege. Now, point C is a little more involved, um, and you have a couple terms in here we probably should identify or at least explain a little bit. But you, you, you say missions, missions rest on two sets of, and here's the word, presuppositions. Now, for those who go to Greenville, they're very acquainted with that term. They know what it is. You can't get out of here without knowing what that is. Um, but what is it? What is what do you say presuppositions? What do you mean? Well, basically, um, just simply for, for the broadcast today, it's just some assumptions, some, some necessary principles, some necessary uh, uh, thoughts that we have that underlies our endeavor to do missions. Okay. That if these weren't true, um, in that sense, missions would be impossible. But because these are true, missions is possible and is successful in, the, in, in that sense. It's, it's, it's those foundation stones uh, for us to do the missionary uh, enterprise. And so I said that there's two sets of presuppositions. One is about man, and the other is about uh, God with regard to um, our doing missions. Okay, and underneath those you have a number of subpoints. I'm going to keep this piece of paper, you know. <laughs> I'll eventually see this again, I think, at some point in time. Um, but, you, but let's start with the, 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 um, the, the about man area. Uh, so missions rest on two sets of presuppositions. One, about man. So what about man okay. that, that missions well, I, rests I, on? I, I basically, and, and I can say it easily, um, the presupposition about man, uh, that he's a rational being, a religious being, a moral being, comes out of Romans, where the Apostle Paul speaks about us, or out of Genesis, uh, that speaks about us as being the image of God. Well, I can hear people protesting already on B. I'm not a religious person. Well, but Paul argues, both in Acts chapter 17 and also gives us the rationale for it in, in Romans chapter 1, that by the very nature of our being in the image of God, all men everywhere are religious creatures. Yep. In fact, all men everywhere, everything that they do is an expression of their um, uh uh, religion, in a sense, whether it is a uh, uh, a belief in themselves as an autonomous man, or whether it is a belief in a an idol, uh, as it was in Acts chapter seventeen, or a belief in philosophy, that th that man has to believe, and all men do believe in something. Something is is the basis of <clears throat> of their life. Now, when you go on, you've been on the field, obviously, as you said many times. Um, in the beginning of this discussion, 
Um, have you, can you give us an example of where you've witnessed people who maybe have never heard the gospel, didn't even know the Bible existed, or had some knowledge of it, but not much, but they demonstrated by their life on the field this, I, this religious practice. Well, you can, I mean, it's, it's obvious as, as, you, as you go around. I mean, every place that you go has, uh, whether it's, you know, false religions uh, such as is Islam or Buddhism mm-hmm. or Hinduism or uh, uh, Confucius, you know, teaching. Um, there's all those more organized religions. But in, in places like Africa or South America that you go, the whole uh, animistic culture that's there, a belief, a polytheistic belief that God's, gods or something controls all kinds of things, spirits, that there's a, mm-hmm. a spiritual world. Uh, the Apostle Paul, speaking in Romans 1, says they exchange the truth for a lie. They deny God, the creator of, of the heavens and the earth, and then they, they worship the creation instead of the creator. So whether he's worshiping himself or worshiping something in nature or the sun, the moon, the stars, or some fictitious uh, God that he's made up, he's still in the process of worship. It is his nature. It is how God has made us, mm. Paul argues. And no man can escape that. He might suppress the truth, he might try to deny it, but yet he cannot, because it is his very nature. I read somewhere that a missionary, um, I don't remember where I read it, so I'm going to butcher this probably, but the general concept is what Dr. Curdo has just said, that um, if you go into unreached tribes, never seen a white man, Right, never heard of the Bible, didn't never heard the word God, as it were, and you just observe. As I read this missionary re- recount this event, you just ob- observe these people. They have religious practices all over the place, and they have absolutely no idea why they're doing it, other than the fact that we can explain it from Romans that this is how they're created. God has imprinted that right on them that they are that way. It's their nature as human beings. Right. And, and, and in that sense, what we're arguing here in this presupposition is that religion is not foreign to them. Mm. Mm-hmm. So it's not like it, it, you're bringing them something that they don't know. They know. It's not foreign to them. What they don't know is the truth. Okay? And so we make this assumption— uh, Part of that, what Paul would argue in, in Romans 1 in terms of the sensus divinitas, this sense of deity, is that man is still rational. Um, we believe in the total depravity of man, meaning that sin has affected every area. But we don't believe in the absolute depravity of man. Man is still a rational creation. He can hear about the gospel and at least understand what we're saying. He might deny it. He might suppress it in unrighteousness. He might plug his ears. But it's not that he doesn't understand, that it doesn't make sense. No matter how primitive a man might be, the gospel, he can hear it, and it can be given to him because he is in the image of God totally deprived, blinded in his mind, rejecting it, but still able to hear the gospel. Yeah, if man was irrational, none of us, we wouldn't even be having this conversation. Exactly. 
Um, none of us would have understood the gospel. And, and then part of that image of God and man also is what Paul again argues in uh, Romans 1 when he talks about the uh, wrath of God being revealed against the unrighteous deeds of man, man either accusing or excusing himself. Mm-hmm. That is part of the image of God. Man knows right and wrong. Morality is not the invention of man. Morality is the image of God in us. And though men try to say that which is wrong is right, or that which is right is wrong, as part of his suppression of the truth, Mm -hmm. his conscience bears witness against him. Now, we all recognize that there are some that the Apostle speaks about who have so seared their conscience that they have become unconscionable. It's like they're out there. And we see that as an abnormality, an extreme but generally speaking, because men are created in the image of God, they have a sense, a knowledge of right and wrong. I asked a person one time, because we were talking about this very issue of morality, and um, I simply asked them, I said, well, how do you know that's wrong? And you know what their answer was? No. That's what I was taught. I said, well, um, okay, fine, I don't dispute that you were taught that, but how did the people that taught you know it was wrong or right? I mean, you get this ad infinitum, um, that are not not ad infinitum. You get this infinite regress. It's got to end somewhere, right? And and it always ends with what you've just said that because God's His nature, His that we are created in His image, it's imprinted on us. You right. can't hide from it. Right. Well, see the Apostle Paul in Romans one. What I believe he's arguing in terms of of God's revelation of Himself. It says that. The heavens reveal. All of creation reveals. It reveals who man is. It reveals the God who has made him. It reveals the, uh, the uh, requirements, the obligations. Hmm. Now, man doesn't discover that on his own. The Bible says there in Romans 1 that God has revealed that so that all men know. Now, they suppress the truth and unrighteousness, yes, but they are suppressing that truth because they know it. And we recognize that in terms of all men. Every nation, kindred, tribe, tongue. This is the way men are. This is the world. They, they, they live in a world that every fact, every event, everything is declaring to them the knowledge of God, Mm -hmm. the knowledge of his law, the knowledge that he is their maker and they owe him worship. Now, they suppress that truth and unrighteousness. I believe that to know anything is to know God. If everything reveals God, if you know anything about anything, then you know something about God. At the same time, not only the creation all around them, but the very fact that they are the image of God testifies the same thing. So when we bring them the scriptures, we're not telling them in that sense something new. Right. We're telling them what they already know, trying to suppress an unrighteousness. So they hear what we're saying because it's what's being said to them every waking conscious moment 
of their life, even in their sleep. Hmm. And we recognize that. So whether it is the, 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 the tribesmen living in the darkest part of Africa, or whether it is the most intellectual man living in Western society, they already know, though they suppress the truth and unrighteousness, the very word that we are going to speak to them in the gospel of Jesus Christ. But with these three statements about man, these presuppositions, that in, in and of itself is not sufficient. We have another side to the same coin here, which is your second presupposition. And the issue is, is about God. Now, what, you know, how does that weave itself into those three, those three elements? Well, into those three elements, as I make these, I make three, uh, talk about four presuppositions about God. One mm-hmm. is his common grace, um, his point of contact, the power of Christ, uh, and the election. <clears throat> First of all, common grace. Generally, when people think about common grace, they think about the way Jesus talks about it in terms of the gospel. He makes it to reign on the righteous as well right. as the unrighteous. Part of God's common grace is, I believe, his restraint of sin in the world. Mm-hmm. Man is bad, but man is not as bad as he could be. Even that one uh, who is the most superstitious, the most ignorant, uh, the most... Um, uh, uh, outcast, as it were, basically uh, is not as bad as he could be. God is, God is restraining sin in the world, which provides us the opportunity still to go on to every nation, right. kindred, tribe, and tongue. Imagine, okay. a, imagine a world where God did not restrain right. sin. And, and it, we, we, we would have the whole world like what we have in some countries. God, in his providence, allows some countries to be worse than others so that it becomes difficult to uh, preach the gospel there. We know in the providence of God, okay, he's closed that door. Eventually, he might open it again. We've seen countries close for years and years and years and years, and then we see countries get opened, and we're able to take the gospel. And that's part of God's restraining grace. God basically, or his common grace, he restrains sin. He doesn't allow man to be as wicked as he could be, though he is wicked in every area of his life. Yeah, even Hitler didn't kill his own mother, Yeah, <laughs> as bad as Hitler was. Anyway, that was free. The, 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 the point of contact aspect of it is, is that uh, we speak about, because man is in the image of God, um, there is that point of contact. In other words, God can reach man. Sometimes we talk about the transcendence of God to such a degree that God becomes so other that he can't have any um, contact with man. But that when God created man in his own image, God created man uh, so that he could and does have communion with him. He condescended. He entered into a covenant with man. All men are covenant creatures, whether they're covenant breakers or covenant keepers. All men are still in covenant with God. And what that means is God still has condescended. Man is reachable by God. God can reach men. Our sin has not made us, in that sense, unreachable from God. So, I was asked the question one time when I was, was going to, to the mission field. 
where somebody said to me, can you really reach these people? I said, it's not a question of whether I can reach these people. It really is a question of whether God can reach these people. And yes, God can reach them. God has condescended. He has made himself to have, or he has entered into uh, a, a situation where he can have contact, as it were. God can reach these people. They are accessible to him. They might not, in some sense, be accessible to me. We could talk about cultural kinds of things. Um, I just hit the microphone. My hands are going. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I was, I was, I was looking for a good opportunity to like explain um, for those who don't come to the seminary, don't come to school here and see Dr. Curdle, have never heard him preach or seen him preach. But I was looking for an opportunity to say it, so now I'm going to say it. Dr. Curdo is not one of these guys that generally sits down and chairs well when he's talking about things that he's passionate about. So if you were in the room, and this was actually a video cast, not a podcast, his hands are going all over the place, but he is passionate about this, and that's the reason. And, and, and I know I've heard Dr. Curdo say it more than once, but he only knows two speeds, fast and faster. And um, so, um, but that's, that's Dr. Curdo. He's just got this energy and love for this subject, especially. And, um, but any class, really, that you take from him, um, you're going to get this kind of enthusiasm and this kind of energy. And so that's why he hit the mic, because his hands are going all over the place. So there you go. Now you know. <laughs> but the point that I'm making here is, is you could ask the question whether or not I have a point of contact with these people because I'm culturally different. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm often ethnically different. Now, I don't happen to think that those are hindrances to the point where they make it impossible. They are obstacles that I have to overcome. But what I'm making the point here is that God does have a point of contact. As creator and as redeemer, Mm -hmm. God is that all men are accessible to God. God is not hindered in any way. And so as we do missions, we recognize that God is not hindered. And part of that is because he has made man to be in relationship with him. He has made man in his own image. And that image not only makes us accessible to man, but also makes man, God accessible to man. God can reach men, all men, every man. The chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. It doesn't say the chief end of the elect. Right. Right? And and no man then ultimately can really be, I'm going to use a word that, well, no man can really be happy <laughs> um, unless they're in a right relationship with God. They're, they're, they haven't, they're, they're not fulfilling that which they were ultimately created for to begin with. Regardless of what you tell yourself out there, if you're listening to this and you don't know Christ, regardless of what you tell yourself, I'm happy, I've got all these things, and yada, yada, well, I don't care. You can tell yourself all day long, I'm happy just the way I am. No, you're not. The Bible says differently. And that's man's chief end, and, and, and it's God who condescends to us, not the other way around. But he doesn't do it without the work of somebody which is your next sub-point. Right. And, and that is, uh, my, the next sub-point is, is the power of Christ, and, and that simply is to say um, uh, Christ can save. Mm. Thankfully. It, 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 theologically, I would, I would put it in these terms. 
Christ did not simply come to make salvation possible. Christ came to save his people yep. from their sins. And those people, those, those individuals that Christ refers to as sheep in John chapter 10 are from every nation, kindred, tribe, and tongue. We sometimes think that God can only save uh, uh, white Anglo-Saxon Protestants, yep. Western people, thinking people. We start thinking about some of the aborigines of, of the world, Africa, South America, uh, places like that. We see them being backwards, uh, or they become so secular and so atheistic that they're beyond the reach of God. Christ can save. Christ does save. Those whom the Father has given to him shall come unto him, and all that come unto him he will in no wise cast out. In other words, he won't fail. So in this sense, it's what, what um, uh, the writer of Hebrews says. There is a fullness of Christ, a fullness of, of ability. He is able to save unto the uttermost mm. all them that come unto him. It's interesting, as you were talking about that, I was just, remo- I was just thinking about uh, other brothers and sisters in Christ that I have that don't that aren't white men that they don't have the same skin color as I do they don't even have the same culture as it were that I do but when we get together we have this common bond it's as though we've known each other for years it's it's hard to explain but it's amazing to watch because the common bond we have is not our skin color. It's not our culture. It's none of those things. It's that we have the same Lord and Savior who saved us. We are, we are brothers together, and, 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 and we have an elder brother, a greater brother, and that's what makes us one. The fellowship that John talks about, the koinonia, that, that wonderful fellowship between brothers that Christ imparts to people even though they live on different corners of the planet. Now, I, I challenge any other organization to say, and I use that word organization in the right sense, to say that they have that kind of relationship with each other. It just doesn't exist. But in, with Christians, it's ex, it, it is, exists because Christ is the one who draws us together as one body, one family, brothers and sisters, a stronger bond than blood. And that's truly remarkable when you think about it. I mean, I've got friends that aren't don't know the Lord. That <laughs> I mean, we there's just no common ground as it, as it were. But I have brothers and sisters in Christ. I meet one time. They live in Asia, and we have a lot to talk about. And it's as though we've known each other forever. How do you explain that? Well, it's this this work of Christ, the power of Christ that saves people and puts them together, and they're and they're a family. And that, to me, that's just one of the most remarkable elements of the gospel um, together. Now, you've, you've touched on election already a little bit, but that is your concluding right. point here. The, the concluding point in terms of election is, um, in this sense, uh, <clears throat> we have a presupposition. If Christ has told us to go to every nation, it's because he has elect in every nation. Yep. So that election isn't just some vague thing. Um, Christ has 
not only chosen certain people, but he's chosen those certain people in every nation. That's why he says, go to every nation. And thankfully, he didn't tell us who those elect were, because then we wouldn't go. That's right. And, and, but at the same time, it, it, we recognize that we're to go to every nation, because he does have elect in every nation. So when I go into a nation, if, if, if God has opened the door and, and we go into the nation, I don't have to wonder and say, I wonder if God has any elect in this place. Just like what God said to Paul when he told him to remain in Corinth. I have many elect mm. in this city. Yep. God is saying to us, I have elect in every nation. Now, those elect might not all be in the same period of time, of history. And it might be that God is going to stop or, or remove nations, and then there's no more elect in that nation, in a sense, because he's removed it. I mean, there's whole peoples that don't exist anymore. I mean, where are the Aztecs? Right. Where are the Incas? Where are the Mycenaeans? Where are the Hivites? I mean, in a sense, they don't... Now, we know that God doesn't have any elect in those nations anymore because they don't exist. But my assumption is every nation that exists at this point, God has elect in there. And I should be looking for opportunities to get to that nation as part of the visible, universal visible church. Yep. And, you know, it's amazing, too. This this subject of election, it really takes the pressure off, doesn't it, Dr. Curdo? Because it's I don't have to make it happen, as it were, right? You be faithful to the Great Commission. You go to those nations, as you just said, that God has elected in every nation. You go, and you're faithful to the gospel message, and it's the Spirit of God that brings people to repentance. It's not a sales tactic. You just be faithful to the message, and God will draw those whom are His— and I, to me, it takes the pressure off. Whether, I, whether I'm giving the gospel in Greenville, South Carolina, or in the middle of China, it doesn't matter. It's the same message, the same process, it's the same, people come the same way by repentance and faith in Christ, and there's no pressure on me, as it were, to convince them of that, as it were. I simply am faithful to the message, if God has elect in every nation. There's no pressure, as in the right sense. There's no pressure. It's not up to me to make that happen, other than to be faithful to go right. and open my mouth. Right. Yeah, there's a, there, there is, in all these points that I've made, the tacit assumption that uh, all of this is only as the Spirit of God works. Right. And, this, and which naturally leads to the next point, which is that the entire motive, the entire motive— of missions, and we're talking about missions, but it's not the only area where the mot- this motive exists. Everything that we do as believers, this ought to be our motive, and that is the glory and honor of our triune God. And that's the next point. So the motive isn't to put another badge on my chest, to earn another trophy, to have a reputation. Um, those things may come. God may be uh, gracious to, to um, promote people's names, as it were, as respectable people, but ultimately the glory goes to Christ, goes to the Lord. And that is your next point. Yeah, the next point, the motive of missions is the honor and glory of God. And it, it's, you know, I make this point because this is, is the what I would sometimes call the umbrella motive, Mm -hmm. the ultimate motive, the primary motive. 
um, is the glory of God. It doesn't mean that there's not subordinate motives in there, but um, this is this is the motive where we start. Why do we do missions? We do missions to the glory, to the honor of God. You see, sometimes people start with the 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 sub motives and try to work up instead of starting at the ultimate, the primary motive, right. and then and seeing the relationship as you move down. Uh, I'd I like to uh, generally, as I present this, talk about um, uh, John Breckenridge, who was the first professor of practical theology and missionary uh, introduction uh, and and uh, missions at uh, Princeton Seminary. Breckenridge said this. He said the first thing that the the, the basis, the the umbrella motive, in a sense, is every appeal on such a subject should begin with reference to the authority of God, mm. the glory of God, the honor of God. That that's where it all begins. We do this because this brings honor and glory to God. And God has said, this is the way I will glorify myself. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, all the Old Testament prophecies that speak about the glory of God that comes through his salvation of men, God is ordained to glorify himself in this way among us. Though he is all glorious in and of himself, he has chosen, he has condescended, he has uh, done this to glorify himself, and that should be the umbrella motive. But then Breckenridge doesn't stop there, and we shouldn't stop there. He doesn't start at the bottom and work up, but he doesn't just state this motive and stop there. He goes on to say, he goes, secondly, the spiritual state and prospects of the heathen stand next to the command of Christ in order of influential motives to a Christian people. Mm. In other words, not only does this bring glory to God, but we can't look out at the world and see it for the way it is and not do missions. People are dying in their sin, in darkness, all around us, all over the world. It doesn't take much to look out and see what's out there. Now, we live here in the United States pretty sheltered life. Yeah. And I'm always uh, uh, struck by when people go to, especially third world countries for the first time, what they come home and say, oh, I would have never imagined it to be the way it is. Well, Breckenridge says not only do we recognize the glory and honor of God as the primary, the umbrella motive, we do this for God's glory, but we also recognize man's plight in sin, Mm. in darkness. And so he says the spiritual state and prospects of the heathen stand right. It's next to Christ. You can't have a love for Christ, John tells us, and not have a love for your fellow man. Yep. The desire to honor God is closely followed by a desire to, to, to see men bettered, as it were, mm. by the gospel. Mm-hmm. But then he also goes on and says, thirdly, the best interests of the Church of Christ at home requires the exercise and operation of a uh, missionary spirit. In other words, you can't have a healthy church without missions. So that's another, we we recognize that. A church that doesn't do missions, Breckenridge would say to us, is an unhealthy church. Now, let's, 
we're, we're talking about a church here in a more broad context than simply a local congregation. We're talking about the particular visible churches of Christ that make up the universal visible church. A church that doesn't do missions is not a healthy church. A church that does do missions doesn't automatically mean it's going to be healthy because there's other factors involved. But if it's not doing missions, it's not healthy. Yep. But again, those second ones, those sub-motives grow out of that primary motive of honoring and glorifying God. And that ought to be the motive that, that gets us, you know, basically going out to do missions. In other words, even if, <laughs> as I look at the world, I recognize how bad it is. But if I look at a particular nation, and it doesn't happen to have economic problems and despots ruling over <laughs> it and murder and crime and, and, you know, all this kind of stuff, I don't just automatically conclude, well, I don't have to go share the gospel with them because they're, they're doing well. In other words, I recognize the plight that has, sin has put man into, but even if it's a moral nation by uh, worldly standards, they still need the gospel. So I don't I don't pick and choose to go to to nations just simply because they're really bad. We go to every nation because from every nation, kindred, tribe, and tongue, God has called the people mm-hmm. to Himself, and we seek to honor and glorify uh, Him. Now the goal. I mean, if I were to ask the listeners, you know, what's the goal of missions? I mean, I, I'm willing to bet that the majority of them would say, well, to Bring people to Christ, which would be a good answer. <laughs> but it's interesting, that's not exactly how you word it. Now, I know that's in there, right. but you word it like this. The goal of missions is the extension and establishment of the church or the kingdom of Christ. Now, to me, there's a subtle difference. I mean, one has one requires the other, but the other one has a longer-lasting output, reach. Yeah, it just comes back to the idea, what are we doing? What do we do in, in um, missions? Well, we establish, we're, we're extending the kingdom of Christ. We're establishing the church among the nations. It's not simply going there to, to uh, lead individuals to Jesus, though that's involved. Yep. Obviously, right. uh, that's what we do. We preach to, as Mark would say, to every creature. Um, we, we preach the gospel to men. But it's not just simply to get men to accept Christ. We are uh, looking to build Christ's church, a church that becomes a uh, particular visible church that becomes part of the universal visible church, a church of like faith and practice, meaning they have accepted the gospel, they follow uh, the teachings uh, of Jesus, a church which becomes self-governing, self-propagating, self-sustaining, a, a, a indigenous church. Mm-hmm. Now, I met a missionary once on the field, and, and he... W- was talking to me because he, he had heard from a friend that uh, we were forming uh, a presbytery, 
I happen to be a Presbyterian minister, so I'm establishing Presbyterian churches. Which, by the way, is the only <laughs> form of church government. So, so Jeff, I, okay, you know, I had to throw that out there. If you come to Greenville Seminary, that's what you're going to hear, and so, and that's what I've been told, and but I happen to believe. But anyway, that's a that was another freak comment. So this this missionary came to me, and he and he was challenging me about whether or not that was really the goal. Uh, of missions was the establishment of the church and I as we were talking I at one point I just said so just tell me what do you think I mean what are you doing here what do you Mm. what's the end game right when you leave or die what are you hoping to to see and basically what he said to me listen my only job as a missionary is to lead people to Jesus hand them a bible and let them figure it out for themselves Mm. tragic and we tried that here in the United States, and well, look at the results, frankly. So we recognize that part of the 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 work will be the uh, leading individuals to right. Christ. But that's not the end game. That's not the 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 end, as it were, as far as this life is concerned. Certainly, it is the end as far as that individual's eternal destiny to be in heaven but in terms of this life the goal the end game is the establishment of the church of christ an indigenous church one which is again self-governing self-propagating self-supporting um uh to establish that church as a light and a testimony in the midst of that nation that world well christ said go therefore go go into all the world and make disciples he didn't say make converts make disciples right. and, and what a difference right. as you're as you're and, and, arguing and, and, it and and i and though somebody might say yeah and it doesn't say anything about establishing the church there well the way i would argue that indirectly from the great commission he tells us to baptize right which happens Baptizing under them, which is which is the ministry of the, of the church. church that's right it is the ministry of the church of christ so then we would ask ourselves the question, what is the biblical doctrine of the church? Is it just local churches? Is it regional churches? So it, it has implications for us in terms of our ecclesiology. When I say it is in terms of that Christ commands us to establish a church, I'm thinking as a Presbyterian. Establishing churches means local congregations and presbyteries and a general assembly. And you mentioned this idea of this indigenous idea. I mean, I think this is a really interesting point um why the indigenous element well because it's it's in that it's in that uh nation it's ultimately going to be that church that's established that evangelizes its own people so it's so the the the, the in other words i don't i as an orthodox presbyterian missionary i wasn't out planting orthodox presbyterian churches i was out to establish uh indigenous churches in the particular region that we're uh, going to with the end game that as that church is established as a church as i understand the church that that church would become a sister church of the orthodox presbyterian church and then as part of the universal visible church working together to evangelize other nations of the world there goes the microphone again it it stayed on its stand though so that's a good thing so, so you, your hope then would be as the church, as as you're doing missions and you're uh, planting these churches. I mean, plant, okay, but 
they get to the point where they're self-propagating, self-sustaining, and self-governing is that um, pastors would be called from that area, culture, um, and then elders, deacons also, and then they, because of the, the fact that they're there all the time, uh, have greater influence around that region to further the kingdom in that area. They're well, from it. Think about it. Think about it from generation to generation. I mean, what are we going to do? Continue to send missionaries there for the next five hundred years? Right. Right. Yeah. Great point. Great point. I wish more. I wish missions was done more with this in mind than the way it's been conventionally done, I think, in some circles. I mean, I was raised, um, just background, um, my parents went to New Tribes Missions uh, when I was a little boy, went through the whole process, you know, but, but we never, I never heard of this, this concept. It was, it was the other one, you know, evangelize people, um, get them to convert, and then head off to wherever, um, you know, it, kind of the Billy Graham mentality. Mm-hmm. Not that I'm not disparaging Billy Graham, anybody out there likes Billy Graham, but the point is, is that, you know, it's how many people can walk the aisle, and that's sort of the end game. But you're saying, no, the end game, that's included, but the real end game is that the establishment the, of Christ because the kingdom. church is the visible representation of Christ's rule and authority on this earth. Right. Well, uh, Jesus, basically, you remember in, in Matthew 16 when Jesus asked the disciples that question, who do men say that I am? And he asked the disciples, who do you say that I am? Um, and they say, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said, Flesh and blood has not revealed mm-hmm. this to you. Uh, and upon this rock, I will lead people to me. He doesn't say that. And upon this rock, I will build my church. Hmm. Christ is building his church. Yep. And not just in the United States. That's right. But that leads me to a question as we wrap things up. These are great philosophy of missions, if you want to use it, you call it that. Um, that's what I'll call it. But um, how does this apply to, uh, I mean, the, the fact of the matter is the majority of people listening to this podcast probably live in the United States and or Canada. We do have some listeners in other countries. That is a fact. But the overwhelming majority is here. How would you suggest or maybe... How would, would you agree that these principles, these, 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 these five points that we've just talked about, how, do, how would one use them where they're at? Well, we could ask the question, is there a difference between home missions and, or what's the difference between home missions and foreign missions? Right. And, and basically, I would say the only difference between home missions and foreign missions is that in home missions, you're working in your own culture, and so there's certain obstacle and hindrances that you don't have to overcome. Right. Where when you're doing foreign missions, you're working in an alien culture, at least alien to you, alien culture, which presents certain obstacles and hindrances that you have to overcome. So all of these principles apply to all the evangelistic work that we do, whether we do it in our own local neighborhood, or we do it in our city, or we do it in our county, or we do it in our state, or we do it in the United States uh, as the the church. And so uh, all of these things apply. And quite frankly, what I say often to churches is, um, when somebody comes to me and says, I, I think God's calling me the minist- uh, mission field. My, one of my first questions to them is, okay, so what are you doing in your neighborhood? Hmm. 
Yeah. I mean, what kind of evangelism are you well, doing, you know, in your neighborhood? Or, or what involvement do you have in the evangelistic program of your church? Or, you know, those kinds of kinds of things. Because, frankly, if you're not doing that at home, you're not going to do that someplace else. Right. Um, and, and, and so basically one of the ways that, that I would say that we can begin to see the gifts that God might be giving someone in terms of a broader work is by seeing how he works in his local church or his denomination or his presbytery mm-hmm. in terms of, of doing evangelism and uh, doing this particular, you know, particular work. And so it begins. Now, the second thing that I, I would say with regard to that more in terms of foreign mission is I don't think missions is accomplished just by sending out, and I happen to be believe that missionaries, ministers, uh, those who are going to proclaim the word, ought to be ordained ministers right. of the word. Yeah, the divine word um, of the church. Yep. Uh, God has, a, you know, given the ministry to the church, and that and Paul argues in Romans ten that the church is to send out men to preach the gospel how will they know on whom to call unless they hear and how will they hear unless someone is sent and how you know who's to send them well the church is but also that there's other aspects in terms of the mission so the church shouldn't just be looking to out ministers of the word but there is they could send out ruling elders that'll help establish churches mm-hmm. training other ruling elders deacons that will help uh, train deacons the diaconal ministry of the church other workers there's individuals that can go as school teachers to teach missionary kids because can go as uh, you know helpers and in, in some way uh, so there's all kinds of aspects in terms of of the mission um, and if what I said was at the beginning that where God, what God uses uh, is uh, the witness of his church, mm-hmm. his gathered community, then part of missions is, is, is transplanting churches, as it were, taking off, taking people with certain gifts and abilities and desire, uh, and, and taking them and establishing a Christian uh, mission, as it were. Um, and so I, I have more of a of a uh, plantation type um, mission mm. uh, uh, endeavor as opposed to just a single missionary uh, going out. Certainly, there are some missionaries that have to go out. Like I consider myself to be kind of like the Marines. I storm the beach. <laughs> yep. Yep. And 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 you ha- and, and 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 so there's the initiation of that work. So you you do have that, but the goal is is to plant the church, and it is within the context of the church that that actually grows. But that's the work that Jesus is doing. He said, "On this rock, mm. I will build my church." Yep. Well, these are excellent, excellent. I, I feel like I've been through the class already, to be honest. Um, by the way, since I'm mentioning that. Um, all classes at Greenville Seminary, to the best of my knowledge, can be audited by anybody. Um, in fact, I think you can even take them for credit. I don't know how it all works. If you want to find out about that, you can contact our registrar here at the seminary. Uh, go to the website, gpts.edu, all the information, contact, that kind of stuff is there. But if you're interested in, in taking a full course on this subject that we just talked about in 50 minutes or so, which we haven't scratched the surface, I don't think, um, a 13-week course on missions from a Reformed perspective. Um, this, is, this was designed to get you excited about the concept. But if you take that class, you can take it. 
So find out if you want to, if you're interested in that, find out more information. You can do it even by distance. So there are ways to get further, uh, further, further information, more education, more information on this subject. Dr. Curtis, it's been good to have you on. Um, I wasn't quite sure how this was going to go because I haven't had the class yet, but I think we've had some good back and forth and um, very challenging elements within it. Um, as I said, I was raised in the missions world, as it were, and none of this. It just wasn't discussed. I mean, it was the other thing that we talked about earlier. Um, but I think this is very helpful, um, both for myself and I'm sure the listeners as well, um, thinking about the subject of missions. How can the listeners pray for you and your work that you're doing in Uganda, Ethiopia, and wherever else you may be going? Yeah, well, certainly um, the, the work in Eastern Africa, specifically in Ethiopia, uh, you know, the political situation there is not always the best. The church is persecuted and, and struggles in a lot of ways. So pray that the, the brothers, the churches that I, that I work with, which is the Reformed uh, Presbyterian Church in Ethiopia, uh, remain uh, faithful and strong as, as they continue to labor. God's open doors. Um, we have a theological college in the uh, southern area uh, with about 25 students that we'll be starting. Mm, uh, pray that great. God would give grace. Uh, also, the, the even, uh, uh, evangelical ch- uh, church in uh, Westminster and Austria and uh, Switzerland. Uh, it's a small church, but the brothers there uh, really have a desire to see Christ magnified. And in, in actually, it's German-speaking Europe, uh, but not including necessarily uh, Germany. There's you know Swiss German mm-hmm. in Switzerland and German in Austria, um, and so it's it's a work among them. But pray that God would uh, continue to strengthen these men. They they struggle with smaller congregations. They want to remain faithful to the Lord and and reach uh, their community. Uh, at the same time, they don't have a lot of finances to really uh, be sending men out. Um, but, you know, the Lord seems to be opening some doors, and so continue to pray. Uh, pray that the Lord would give me strength. It, it involves a lot of, of uh, travel. God's given me a lot of, you know, energy, and uh, I'm willing Which we've to witnessed it. and heard <laughs> firsthand willing, today. I'm willing to do it until, you know, the Lord says it's time to, you know, to come home. But uh, just pray for traveling mercies and, and things like that. Great. Appreciate it. And thank you very much for allowing me the opportunity. Absolutely. And just so everybody knows, I mean, the reality is this, you know, not everybody's called to missions, as it were. Okay, the missions we've been talking about, going to Switzerland, going to Ethiopia, going to Uganda. Okay, fine. But you know what? Every single believer is called to pray. There's not a one that's an exception to that. So you've just heard some very important prayer requests in this area. So take the time right now. Hit the pause button and pray for missions. Pray for the advancement of the gospel. The, the, the prayers of the saints is what waters these things and causes the increase. And we don't see things happen because the church doesn't pray. That's just the reality of it. And so pray. Pray for missions. Pray for Dr. Curtis. He's going out and laboring. Pray for the things he just mentioned. Pray for other missionaries that you may know. That as they're laboring, I heard a great sermon about how missionaries on the field are to get discouraged, and, and guess what? They get discouraged, just like you, because they're lonely, and they don't know 
that there's people back home praying for the work. No one's holding the ropes for them. And so we need to be, as the affluent westernized church, as we like to think we are, we ought to be praying more, that the God would bless the labors of people that have sacrificed a lot for the advancement of the kingdom. Now, they, don't, they may not see it that way, but from where I sit, they've sacrificed a lot. I mean, I get up out of this chair this, this morning, and I want to go get something to eat. I jump in my car, and I drive down the street to McDonald's, and I got food. <clears throat> so take the time. So consider this a mild exhortation. This wouldn't be a Confessing Our Hope podcast if we didn't have at least one of those for me. So there you go. But seriously, take that, take that to heart. Pray for the work of the gospel in these areas. Dr. Curdle, it's been wonderful talking with you on this subject. Next week, we'll have uh, a graduate of Greenville Seminary and a, a former guest on the program, I think more than once already. Um, he'll be on to talk about his book, Christ's Glory, Our Good. The author is Ryan McGraw. I almost said Dr. Ryan McGraw, but not yet. Not quite. Almost there. Um, but not yet. But maybe by the time we I release it, it will be. I'm not sure exactly the timeline. But he'll be on to talk about his book, Christ's Glory, Our Good, put out by Reformation Heritage Books. So until then, we do thank you for listening to this, this edition of Confessing Our Hope, an energetic edition of Confessing Our Hope, the podcast of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. And God bless.